0: Eat, Drink, DFW, from the Dallas Morning News, is made possible by Central Market.
1: Hey, North Texas food fans. Welcome to Eat, Drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today on the show, we're talking with Brian Reinhart, dining critic at D Magazine and formerly Dallas Morning News columnist about halal food and Muslim-owned restaurants in North Texas. It's going to be really fun and interesting, and it all gets started right after this.
0: Central Market is really into food. Like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make-every-recipe-in-the-cookbook foodie or a my-favorite-recipe-is-reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have you here for our show as we dive into summer. We're always evolving the show, and it's been great to hear your feedback since we launched, and we want to hear a lot more from you. What do you want us to talk about, dish on, etc.? Send us your questions and voice memos via our form at dallasnews.com slash food, or email us at eatdrink@dallasnews.com. at dallasnews.com. We also have detailed show notes of everything we talk about now, and you can find those recaps online with a bunch of links at dallasnews.com slash food. Later on, we'll be talking with Brian Reinhardt, dining critic at D Magazine, about halal food. But now we're going to kick off the show with some news and what everyone is talking about, because there's always so much going on. So I'm here with food reporter Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Ballard today. Hi, guys. Hey, Erin. Hello, hello. And Claire is just fresh off of a trip to Italy, and we'll be talking about Italian food on another episode. But Claire, do you want to tell us just a little bit about
2: how your trip was? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Um, lots of seafood, lots of incredible um, fresh pastas, and and everything. We spent some time in, in Northern Italy, and then down on the Amalfi Coast, and um, having some withdrawals currently. <laughs> <laughs> right, and also also still combating a little bit of jet lag, but yes. almost through that.
1: Well, great. Well, thank you, um, thank you for joining us and. I'm excited to talk about Italian food on a later episode. Um, But for now, we are going to talk about something that everyone has been talking about a little bit. The New York Times did a story on tipping fatigue recently, where, you know, talking about how basically we have to tip everywhere we go now. Even for coffee, things like that, there are the automatic kiosks, the tipping, you know, 15, you choose 15 or 20 or 25% when you go out tipping and people are getting fatigued about it. But then Bon Appetit had a story that told us to stop talking about tipping fatigue (laughs) and (laughs) that we should continue tipping and stop complaining about it. So Sarah, I know you had some thoughts about this. I think it's a great question,
3: Erin. It's something I think about as well. It seems as though we need to tip at many more Food establishments than we did before. And, uh, you know, I'll give an example. I got crumble cookies for my daughter's sixth birthday party, and Mm -hmm. you can tip at crumble cookies. And I did, because I think they did a beautiful job with my cookies. Uh, Of course, we're asked to tip at our coffee shops. So I think part of the tipping fatigue in the New York Times story stems from the idea that customers used to be accustomed to tipping at a restaurant. And we're less accustomed to tipping at other food service establishments. Uh, and now we are being asked to do that at a lot of places. Um, I'm not opposed to tipping at these, these order at the counter spots. Mm-hmm. But it does beg the question, do you do it everywhere? You know, Do you pick? I don't know that I have a right rhythm other than I try to be generous because I think that the restaurant industry is in a tough spot. But a lot of our money is going toward tipping restaurant folks or food service folks when we didn't used to do that. Do you both feel like you're spending
1: more money? Oh, for sure. I have to say that I am part of the you know contingent of diners getting tipping fatigue because I'm also usually a very generous tipper. So if I see that 25% or 30%, I'll usually do that. But it definitely adds up over time. And I mean, it really just makes you feel like you're supporting the worker when really it's the employer who should be doing that.
2: I think there are two like important things to note here. And one is that we're in a situation with historic inflation. And I think that right. that certainly plays into how people are feeling right now with regards to dining out and tipping, because obviously your your tip is impacted by that, right? If your bill is just higher overall, Um, So will your tipping percentage. And so, you know, and that's not the restaurant industry's fault, nor is it the person who's serving you. Um, And so it it puts workers in a tough position. And then also, I mean, I've been a vocal uh, advocate for a while of of the fact that the tipping system in America needs to be reimagined and restructured. But we've seen places try to figure out workarounds before and they haven't generally really stuck. It's tough because I think a lot of people would be interested in doing away with that and and having a a situation where restaurant uh, workers are paid full wages, but it's hard. It's like, how do we get there? Will we ever get there? Um, And in the meantime, it is on, on diners to tip in order to give these people, you know, a full and fair wage. Right. Claire
3: There, you've been a lot of reporting on this, and I've there's been some things I've learned from your reporting. Can you kind of explain to us why a tip isn't or shouldn't be a reward and how many of us are using it as
2: such? Yeah, that's such a good point. And honestly, I mean, this is this is the biggest issue that I have with the whole system is that it creates just incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, experience for not only the diner, but also for the server. I've, I've been a server. um, Anyone who has been a server knows that it's not always a healthy dynamic that's created by, by the tipping structure. Um, and, and you're right, there's a problem that people think of it as you, the clock starts at zero when you sit down at someone's table and they have that time that you're sitting there to earn this tip. And that's super problematic. Um, the, the way that tips need to be thought about is just as the cost of the service that you're being given. Um, of course, then you encounter problems when that is up to each person's discretion. And what do you base that off of? Which is why I think that it's prudent for people to just sit down and just have a percentage already in mind that they're going to tip, um, You know, I think nowadays it's best to do minimum 20% Mm -hmm. and think of that as a built-in cost for your meal and that if you aren't tipping, you were underpaying for the meal that you were having. Um, But it it really does create uh, tough dynamics, I think. I mean, I've seen – I don't know if if you guys have experienced this lately, but when I have dined out recently – When there have been issues that have happened in the kitchen or with food being fired too late or things not being, I don't know, entered correctly, I have experienced servers being very quick to throw their coworkers under the bus for (laughs) issues. And I understand why. They want to protect their tip, right? They want to make sure that you know, this is not, I didn't do this. Please don't dock my pay because of issues that are happening in the kitchen. On the consumer side, it's really awkward. Right. It's like I, I don't really care what what's going on behind the doors, just just wondering where my food is, you know. So right. I don't know if you guys have experienced that too, but I've seen that happening a bit more lately than I think I used to.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a very it it brings a kind of a weird dynamic to the dining out experience.
3: Services is a little bit different right now in restaurants than it used to be. Too, I feel as though in my dining experiences there have been a lot more new servers, which yes, yeah. you know has such deep roots in the pandemic really messed up the restaurant industry. I think a lot of career servers could have left the industry to go do something else in a time when jobs might've been uncertain. The part that worries me is that these servers who are making 2 to $3 an hour, that's another really important part of this, is that the servers can't make enough money to live if not for the tips, which Claire alluded to, but I don't know if everybody realizes just how low their actual hourly wages. It's super low. Yeah. yeah, so they depend on those tips and then you say well you didn't do a great job because if it if that's true um it's it's just it's just fraught with problems and um I don't know I would encourage people to be generous when they can if you have the opportunity to go to a coffee shop or go to a restaurant maybe you have a little bit of extra disposable income and the people who are serving you probably could really benefit from your 20% tip. And the difference between a 15% tip and a 25% tip might only be a couple of
1: bucks. Okay. And next in the news, we have a couple of awards that um, some foodie folks here in Dallas have received recently. Um, Chef John Tizar, who has multiple restaurants in Dallas, also has a restaurant in Florida. And that restaurant was awarded a Michelin star recently. Sarah, did you want to talk about that? Sure,
3: yes, John tisar and every chef everywhere would love to win a Michelin star <laughs> through their restaurants and uh it's it's not possible to win one in Texas right now because there are not uh, Michelin inspectors who come to Texas. So John T. Sarr's restaurant Knife and Spoon won one Michelin star last week, and what that means is that the chef can sort of carry that as his own. It, it technically goes to the restaurant, but the chef can uh, say, I, I'm a Michelin award winner if they were the chef at the restaurant. Knife and Spoon is fun for Dallas folks who like a little Easter egg because John T. Sarr has Knife in Dallas and mm-hmm. in Plano, and he had Spoon. These were a steakhouse and a seafood restaurant, two separate concepts. He combined the two for a resort in Orlando, and that's what won the Michelin star. And a fun little side note, um, the the Michelin awards were at his restaurant. He didn't know he was going to win, but he sure hoped he would. And uh, they were the host. And he did, in fact, win one as a surprise.
1: Well, that's nice. It would be kind of awkward not to, if, I mean, at your own restaurant, like – you would think, but I don't know that that's a requirement. I'm not I don't know. I, don't know. I guess not. <laughs> and we have another award winner in the Dallas area Jose Rolot, taco editor at Texas Monthly, recently won a James Beard Award for his Tex Mex Planer series. And also, coming up for our print readers. Stay tuned and check out your paper this coming Sunday, June 19th, for Eat Drink DFW Magazine. It has a bunch of awesome stories in there. Sarah's piece on all of the oldest restaurants in DFW. We've got the history of black barbecue in North Texas. We've even got some stories about spam and lots about tequila. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) yes that definitely deserves all right thanks so much guys coming up we'll be talking with brian reinhardt who always has intelligent insight about the dallas food scene don't miss it we'll be right back
0: central market is really into food like when we say cheese it's in 12 languages into food butchers bakers and sushi roll makers into food we're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food central market is really into food if you are, too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com.
1: This is Eat, Drink, DFW. I'm Aaron, and we're back to talk with special guest Brian Reinhart dining critic at D Magazine and former columnist for us here at the Dallas Morning News. We miss him a lot, but I'm so happy that he gets to write even more about food now and we can bring him on the show to talk about it. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much. So great to be here.
1: Awesome. So since this is your first time on our show, why don't you tell us a little bit just about yourself and how you got into food writing in the first place?
4: I come from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana and I got into food writing entirely by mistake. Uh, It was supposed to be a hobby for my friend and I, and we got carried away and it went too far. And yes, and now I have a full-time job. I honestly don't know how I could retrace the steps, and I just feel thankful for it. Um, I will say this is my first time ever appearing on a podcast, so this is an exclusive.
1: (laughs) Yay! Yes, exclusively to the Eat Drink DFW podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. And so I know that one area you like to focus on a lot with your coverage is Halal food and Muslim-owned restaurants. And why is this so important to you?
4: Yes. My mom is from Istanbul, Turkey. She's a Muslim-American, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. Uh, She came to the United States as an adult. And I grew up with a mixture of Midwestern American food and her cooking and her foods that she'd grown up with. So she actually didn't know how to cook when she came to the United States or didn't have a lot of practice, but started kind of recreating all of her family recipes and buying cookbooks and learning and remembering how her grandmother did things. So I was lucky enough to have that background And uh, it was something that I just naturally wanted to bring to my food writing. And it was something I wanted to shed light on. I think also I got serious about food writing in the year 2016 because of my family background and and so forth. The political situation at that time was not friendly to Muslims and arguably still is not. There's serious talk about their place in the United States. And uh, there are people who would like to make them feel unwelcome. So I feel a special obligation to... um, fight against that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. And so what were some, you know, dishes that you that you grew up eating that your mom cooked?
4: I just found out the story about this the other day. um, But our special occasion meal is lamb chops. And mm-hmm. uh, a thing that's a little bit different for most people is the serving size, I guess we've had guests come to the house and be surprised that they're expected to eat four to six lamb chops at a sitting. <laughs> you don't just get one or two, uh, you get a half rack basically. And the backstory it turns out is that uh, my mother was in the hospital when she was eight or nine years old and uh, her grandmother roasted racks and racks of lamb chops and, put them into little tubs and snuck them into the hospital so that mom would have something to eat while she was being taken care of, rather than the grim cafeteria food. Right. Um, So that's kind of, that's become why now everybody's birthday, every holiday, almost, you know, it may not be Christmas day, but it might be the night before, the day afterwards, but there's always going to be a rack of lamb chops on the menu at a special occasion.
1: Awesome. Per person, I guess.
4: Yes, almost. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So tell us a bit about the Dallas area Muslim community that you've discovered. Which countries are they largely from and which populations do we see represented here in the food world?
4: Yes, um it's it's a challenging thing to research actually. The the, the first Muslim community here was actually the Nation of Islam, um American raised movement. Right. Yep. But when you get beyond that, the Muslim world is across three continents. The statistics for Dallas are not very well-kept or very clear. The U.S. census does not track religion officially. Pew Research did a sort of religion census of America in the year 2014. I haven't found a more recent one. And then probably about half of the people in the Muslim world are legally considered to be white in U.S. census data because uh, the Middle East, North Africa, Turkey, the Caucasus, Iran, all of that area is considered to be white people for the purposes of American kind of data collection. Hmm. But from what I can tell, there are it's about one to two percent of the Dallas Fort Worth area is uh, Muslim, mm-hmm. which is something like hundred to two hundred thousand people. But there's a lot of variance there. It's a you know we're talking about whether the community is about the size of Richardson or whether it's about the size of Plano or Arlington. We don't really Um, have exact information on that. The biggest community here, though, is uh, people from South Asia. So those are people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, who uh, came here after those nations started to split up along religious lines and had a little bit of uh, religious conflict at the time of the division.
1: Yeah. And have you seen more kind of come to this area in, in recent years or in the last decade or so?
4: Definitely, because of all the high-tech stuff. With with all the wave of tech companies coming to the area and startups and um, and stuff like that, we've definitely seen a huge increase in, especially South Asian, but you know, immigrants of all kinds coming to the Dallas area with that wave.
1: One thing I've noticed about when populations move here, a lot of what they start doing is what they know, which is cooking, starting restaurants, things like that. How do you see that play out in the food scene here?
4: I think... Pakistani food is one of our strengths uh, okay. as a region. For example, up in uh, Carrollton, Al Marcas is the original pioneer of the area, so so to speak. You know, when I've talked about other places, I wrote a column for the Morning News about Pakistani barbecue restaurants, and the number one feedback that I got from people was, "Have you been to Al Marcas?" Yeah. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's an institution at this point. They have a great lunch special; it's only like seven dollars, and everybody knows it. It's apparently also from what I'm told it's right down the street from one of the biggest mosques. So everybody goes after it's like Sunday brunch after church. It's where the social scene happens in the evenings. We also have a great deal of restaurants from the Arab world, but they're very diverse and scattered. Um, I grew up partly in Dearborn, Michigan where everybody is Lebanese, all the food is Lebanese food. So that was kind of what I was expecting, but we have a lot of people here from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iraq, Tunisia, Egypt. So the scene is uh, very diverse in that way. And there's not one particular thing that stands out so much.
1: Yeah. What are some of your favorite spots to go to?
4: Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite spot is, I mean, if I had to pick a number one, which you didn't even ask me to, <laughs> is um, Fatouche in Pantigo, right in the, between Dallas and Fort Worth. He is from Baghdad. He was a refugee. His brother was killed by terrorists. And um, he was working as a restaurant worker in Baghdad. He was serving cheeseburgers to the American soldiers. And they told him, well, these are the best, most American style cheeseburgers. These are the closest that we get to the real thing while we're serving in Iraq. Um, So they actually wrote him letters of recommendation. And they told him even before he applied for refugee status, they told him, keep these, you're going to need it someday. And then when he was able to apply, he had all of these letters from soldiers saying, this is a good guy. He's fed us and we trust him and so forth.
1: Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um,
4: it's a great story. And I mean, a good story is good, but he's also a great chef. So that's a, <laughs> right. a wonderful plus. Um, I also like open sesame Lebanese mm-hmm. on, in Oakland. It's easy to get to for most people in central Dallas and nice, good food uh, or nice, casual food, I should say. hmm. If you want to try something from Afghanistan, you should go to Plano and try Express Kebab. They have really, really aromatic and sumptuous rice pilafs and kebabs done Afghan style. Oh, yummy. That sounds
1: amazing. And so can you explain a little bit um, kind of what what halal means? Because I know we see that. I mean, I live in Plano, mm-hmm. so I see that everywhere, especially during Ramadan. There's, you know, um, a lot of advertisements for... Um, uh, halal fried chicken and things like that.
4: Yeah. And um, I know that halal also has been the subject of some fear mongering from people who think that maybe it's some sort of creepy religious thing or, or religious rule. It is a religious rule in the same sense as kosher. So it dictates particularly how um, animals are slaughtered, although there are kind of obscure rules for making halal plastic and paper products that i don't even Um, know honestly yeah um but mostly it it concerns how the animals are slaughtered and actually the result is that you get very very good quality meat even non-muslim restaurant owners that i've talked to in dallas and austin have said that they love the consistency and the consistent quality these are you know like these are chickens where they haven't they fed the chickens with organic stuff and they're free range or non-cage um, because the religious rules do not countenance the idea of factory farming, basically. Right. Um, and it's hard to do um, large-scale factory slaughter following those rules. So right. um, a lot of chefs, even outside of the Muslim community, find that they're getting a better quality and more consistent product, which is great. Um, and I can you can test this for yourself by going to Sarah's and Richard's and the grocery um, and going to the meat counter, which I think is one of the best butcher counters in the whole Region. It can be hard to tell when a restaurant is uh, from a Muslim culture or Muslim owned um if they don't have the halal advertising because right. of marketing because they frequently use the word Mediterranean and um also or they'll frequently use the word indian if they're mm-hmm. if they're Muslims from India, which I think is one of the actually one of the largest Muslim countries even though it's mostly known as Hindu. Um, and then right. or if they're from somewhere else in South Asia, they'll use the word Indian because Americans recognize the word Mediterranean much more than they recognize. Like if you saw Jordanian food, you would probably scratch your head a little bit. But if you see the word Mediterranean, OK, well, now you know what to expect. Right. I have often wondered myself if there's some element of using those words, those names to protect against prejudice sentiments or anti Arab American type ideas, especially after September 11th. But I haven't been able to prove that one way or another. And, I, and you know, if if it's true, I don't think anybody is going to admit to it very readily. It
1: also makes it kind of confusing for, for consumers to find out, you know, what they want to try, you know, because Mediterranean is just like, yeah. you know, could be anything.
4: Yeah, Spain and Italy are Mediterranean, <laughs> yes. you know. Uh, France and Egypt, it's the same sea that touches all of them. Sometimes I'll look for how they spell words on the menu to see if there's a clue to a particular Mm. culture one frequent giveaway on a menu is a dish called fool which is f u l Um, it's a stew of fava beans and spices and olive oil and garlic and parsley and so on and that is an egyptian dish particularly so that's one of the ones that i use as kind of like a clue i see that and i go okay well they either are from or have spent some time in egypt and then that kind of helps to unravel the mystery behind where they're from sometimes
1: Oh, that's interesting. And what are some other kind of dishes aside? We've talked about meat and barbecue a lot. What are some other dishes like the fool and things like that to
4: try? I love going to Middle Eastern bakeries, uh, Mm -hmm. especially like Balad Bakery. And there's actually one right behind Balad Bakery as well. Zidar Market. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have wonderful little kind of like spirals or pies that have spinach and cheese or just spice mixes Uh, sometimes, or acawi cheese, which is from Syria, I think, originally. And you'll find that often in kind of Middle Eastern pizzas on flatbreads or in little boats. It's a delicious, very melty white cheese. My favorite Persian food Mm -hmm. is gorma sabzi, which is a stew. It's a really long, slow-cooked stew. Um, where the base, instead of being beans or meat or something like that, the base is herbs like parsley, leeks, oh. green onions, coriander, every green thing you can conceive of. Everybody has a different recipe in Iran. You dump it in a pot and cook it really low and slow until it's just like the ultimate comfort food.
1: That sounds amazing. Even though it's like 105 outside right now, like I can yeah. go for a whole of
4: that. <laughs> well, it's lighter than a meat stew, <laughs> right? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. While still being that just super savory, super satisfying.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the show. I always learn so much talking to you.
4: Well, thank you. Uh, Likewise. And um, I always love talking about good food.
1: All right. Stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, we'll hear from some friends of the pod about their favorite foodie tips and reviews. That's right after this.
0: Hey, listeners. This is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News and that thankfully includes the food team that you're listening to right now what i love about this beat is that food stories are people stories restaurants say a lot about who we are our culture and the health and well-being of our communities if you want to help continue supporting this good work it's easy just subscribe to the dallas morning news and become a member you'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com/listen
1: Welcome back, everyone. Now it's time to hear some feedback from our listeners. Julie Fisk, a longtime radio expert and personality here in Dallas, is a great friend of the pod, as we like to say. And she's been helping us a ton behind the scenes on our podcast. And now she has some wedding food recommendations.
0: Hey ladies, I was just listening
3: to Natalie talk about wedding food, and one suggestion I would make is to keep your atmosphere in mind, because I went to a wedding that was outdoors in Illinois in August, and it was freaking hot, and they served like mashed potatoes and fried chicken, which was lovely, but it was also kind of miserable trying to eat that stuff out in the heat, so I would keep that stuff in mind. Also, my cousin served a cheesecake wedding cake at her wedding, which was the most amazing thing I have ever tasted. I loved it. But I was thinking about it recently because nobody else in my family eats cheesecake. So it would have been kind of a bust. Uh,
1: Just keep that in mind. Can't wait to hear more about your wedding, Natalie. And I hope you serve some of those egg rolls. Bye. Thanks so much, Julie. I also don't eat much cheesecake, but I would happily try a wedding cake version. You can also hear more from Julie on her own podcast called Haunted AF. It's super fun, and if you like everything ghosts like I do, then you'll love this podcast. You can go to hauntedaf.com to find out more. And next, Julie's daughter Emma checked out Project Pollo after we talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Here's her review.
2: Hi, I'm Emma Fisk from Dallas, Texas, and I checked out Project Pollo after hearing about it on the podcast. And I gotta say, it was definitely worth it we got some fries and some sandwiches and some burgers and um, a shake too and it was all amazing highly recommend the fries with the uh, the cheese and the jalapenos it's almost unbelievable that it's all vegan really crazy but yeah thanks it was really really good
1: and that's all the time we have for eat drink dfw this week thank you all for joining and i hope we've made you hungry for more also, we want to hear from you. We want to know what y'all are eating, drinking, trying, and loving, and we want you to tell us about it. We want your questions, too, so fill out our form at dallasnews.com food, or email us at eatdrink@dallasnews.com. at dallasnews.com. We'd love to share your thoughts on a future episode. The show is produced by Natalie Kalmungun. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.